0: Uh, several weeks we've looked at the visions and uh, the the night visions that Zechariah has had. uh, We finished those up last week. We came to the end of them and then went over into his first message after he received that, which was a very symbolic message. Remember he took the money that they had brought over as a offering and he made crowns out of it, made actually two crowns. It was probably one crown. It just had two rings uh, the way the uh, actual writing was. And they placed that on the head of Joshua, the high priest. Now, uh, nowhere else in the Bible do we find where a high priest was crowned. But as we continued reading it and looking at it, it was very symbolic of that messianic kingdom, the reign of Jesus Christ. When he comes, That he's going to rule both as king and priest, as well as prophet. And uh, so Zechariah was doing this. One of the reasons I think that he chose uh, Joshua, of course, he was high priest as opposed to, Choosing, you know, you could have went another way. You could have took the governor, which was Zerubbabel, and put some kind of uh, turban on him to indicate that he was a high priest. You know, you could have done it that way as well and made the same picture, but. Uh, if you tried to exalt the governor because they're still under Persian rule, may have caused some problems. But nonetheless, he used Joshua and he made that symbolic thing. So tonight we're going into chapter seven. We're going to notice a few things. We're, we're kind of walking over a threshold at this chapter. It's we've got out of the night visions. We're starting to get into some more. We're going to look at some more messianic prophecies, some more things concerning Israel, some of that prophecies during that end time. And we're going to see a lot more of that as the next uh, few chapters go on. And uh, a lot of it's very difficult. It's hard for me to uh, to kind of pin down. And I want to kind of travel a little bit faster. But at the same time, I don't want to trample over anything that's important. It's just so, it's such good reading that when I get into it and I get to studying it, I just want to, I want to chew on it for a while. Have you ever, uh, I forget who the author was that Kim I was reading now, um, maybe, I don't know, Beth Moore or somebody, a K-author or somebody, where, where they said that they would read the Bible and it's like chewing gum. You know, you just chew it till the flavor's gone, then you just pour it out and stick it in your hair. You know, you, you just want to keep it. And sometimes, you know, that's the way I feel when I read through these because it's just such good words of encouragement and good things for us even today. You know, we think of the minor prophets as being past there's something that's not really meant for us. But I think it, it, even in tonight's uh, service, we're going to see that there's a lot of things that is for us and a lot of things that are useful for us and a lot of those same lessons that Israel needed to learn are some of the same lessons that we need to learn and apply to our lives. So let's go ahead and just read. We'll read chapter 7 in its entirety. There's only 14 verses or so. So we see here, tonight's going to be about traditions and uh, what do we do with it and h- how do we handle the traditions of the past. I've told this joke plenty of times. I, I like it. I think it really speaks to it about the uh, young lady that got married, and she was fixing their first uh, Thanksgiving dinner, and she was fixing the ham up, and she cut the ends off of the ham before she put it in her pan to put it in the oven. And as she was uh, doing that, her husband asked her, "said Well, honey, why do you cut the ends off of it?" She said, "Well, I don't know. That's what my mom always did." Well, their mom happened to be over for Thanksgiving. and so the daughter asked the mother, says, Mom, said, why is it that you always cut the ends off of your ham before, uh, you know, before you baked it? And the mother said, well, you know, that's the way my mom always did it. Go get Grandma and let's ask her. So they went and got her Grandma and they brought her in says, why is it that you always cut the ends off of your ham before you baked it? What purpose does that serve? She said, oh, honey, that's easy. I never had a pan big enough for a whole ham. You know, <laughs> sometimes we have traditions that we don't know why or where they started. And sometimes it's good for us to go back and reevaluate them. I mean, this is what we see here in this chapter. We have a few things that are going to take place. We have some men that are still in Babylon that are coming back and they're going to ask the question of the high priest or the priests that are there and say, seek God's counsel on this for us. Should we still continue to fast uh, in observation of the, well, The destruction of the temple, the destruction of the walls of Jerusalem, and so forth. But we'll get into all that and see it. But first, I want to point out, notice how time marches on. You know, when we're reading the Word of God, we need to ask some questions, some very important things about when it's being done. And if you notice here, it tells us that it happened in the fourth year of the King Darius. Uh, The Word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month. So the fourth year, and in the ninth month. Now, when did the visions come to him, or when did this uh, book start? Does anybody remember? Turn over to chapter one, and you'll notice it happened in the second year of the of the uh, Darius the king. So, basically, two years has passed since this happened. You know, I've been thinking about this a lot of times. You know, and, and it's the second year, the sixth month, and now starting at the seventh chapter, it's the fourth year in the nine months. So, basically, two years have passed. Uh, between these two events, and I've been thinking a lot about how we are in our lives and the benefit that we have as far as having the completed Word of God, but at the same time, how sometimes that can be a little bit hard for us. It can be hard for us to look at it because we all want the great events to happen in our life, don't we? We, we want to see the Pillar of Fire. We want to see the burning bush. We want to see God roll back the Red Sea. We want to see those great monumental events that took the place that place in the lives of saints and even in our lives. We want to have those high moments, those days to where we really see God move. We really see Him act. But really, at the same time, how much of their information do we have? You know, uh, I'm sure that during the two years that we have no record of here that Zechariah got up every morning, he went out and he preached, he prophesied, he tried to encourage the building of the wall, he did his daily routine, he tried to do what he was supposed to do. Even though we don't have the record of those events, that time just marches on. Time uh, kept on going, and he was still doing those little things that needs to be done. You know, we often say at our house, or my mother, I talked about Brother Ray the other day, that uh, sometimes we do those things that nobody noticed until they don't get done. And then when they don't get done, everybody notices it. You know, sometimes we just have to do those simple little things and keep on going. You know, when we take the life of Moses and we look at Moses, we have, well, we have recorded of his death. Deuteronomy chapter 34 and verse 7 uh, tells us that he was 120 years old when he died. We have the record of his birth. We see when he was placed in the basket and he was Put into the Nile River and the Pharaoh's daughter came and she found him and she put him out. And then we have these little bits of information throughout his life. We have the burning bush experience. We have when he went to Pharaoh and he said, let my people go. He threw his staff down and turned to a snake. Or when all the plagues came or when he led the nation of Israel across the Red Sea. Or when he walked up onto the Mount Sinai and the, the glory of God shone round about him. He came down, his face was shining like noonday sun. We see these events happen in his lives when they come up against him and he speaks to them and then the ground opens up and swallows part of them and, and you see all these things happen. But yet, if we look at the Word of God, how much information do we really have about the life of Moses? Just a few pages, a couple chapters, a, you know three or four uh, books here at the beginning, just you know a quarter inch of a two inch Bible that we can read about things that surrounded the life of Moses, and most of that, if we broke it up, would just be a handful of days. The reason I say that is Moses lived 120 years. There was a lot of days that we don't have anything recorded about. There was a lot of those days to where he just went up the hill, when he walked around in a circle, when he picked up his staff, put on his shoes, put on his robes, and just led the nation around there was days that he didn't hear from God. There was days that he just got up and had to do what needed to be done for that day. We need to be like Moses in that. We need to just get up and do what needs to be done on those days. Not every day is going to be worthy of recording in the scripture for Moses. Not every day in our life is going to be worthy of sitting and writing down great events on a chart and saying, this is what happened this day. Yeah, I, I think it was all a fable, but you know what happened on July the 4th, 1776 in King George's journal? I think this was fable. I don't think it actually said this, but it was always reported there for the longest time that it said nothing of gr- any significance happened this day. It was interesting because, of course, the signing of the Declaration of Independence and it took, uh, you know, several days for the word to travel back to King George, you know, several weeks actually to travel back. But some days we have that. If we keep a journal, Do we ever write in our journals that nothing of any importance happened on this day? Sometimes we're going to have days like that, but yet we need to just focus on what God has called us to do, get up, put our shoes on, and go about our daily business, do the daily routine of what's supposed to happen, and just do the groundwork, the normal events. You know, Kim and I, you'll hear us talk about the normal. It's just a setting on the dryer. You just just get up and you go. So uh, this is... I wanted to point that out because I think it's important for us to see that. Two years have passed between this first period of time and this second period of time. But don't think it was two idle years. It was two important years. We're two years closer to the temple being completed. In fact, this is why these two men come from Babylon in order to speak to them. They have this question because now that the temple is getting closer to being rebuilt, they have a question concerning their their traditions. They were sent, uh, well... Uh, Shazar and uh, Regimelech, I think is fairly close, I'm not sure, I, I looked them up, but uh, they're both Babylonian names, it indicates that they had come from Babylon, that they were probably Jewish people, but yet they had been uh, assimilated into the Babylonian custom and uh, uh, um, tradition, you know, it's not, nothing uncommon, you look at Daniel, they changed his name to Belteshazzar. and uh, uh Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego—all their names are changed to Babylonian names. And, you know, so the same's here now. We don't really, uh, because it's um, of or Babylonian origin, we don't know exactly what the words mean. But Shezar means roughly "Prince of Fire." Reg, Regman Melik means "the Heap of Kings," and, and what it's saying there is like the the stone or the the uh, the barrier around the king where the king would put up a fortress or a wall or a rock wall around him is basically what that means but they were sent from Babylon with the from the Jews that had a question and the question was simply this about the feast and the fast that they were observing you know when they fasted from something they would well Ramadan uh, for the Muslim people started last Friday I think or did it start this Friday I know that Friday they're in it. I'm I'm not sure when exactly it started, but basically they abstain from food. Now, for the Jewish people, they abstain from sundown to sundown, which means they abstain for an entire day. Their day started at night, and and they would abstain from anything to eat or drink during that entire day. Now, I've got a question for you. I know a couple of you in here know this. How many fasts were prescribed under the law of Moses, under the original law. How many times was the nation of Israel as a whole required to fast? One time. Under the law of Moses, there was only required to fast one time, and that was uh, because that was there in the Day of Atonement. Uh, that was that was the only time that, by the law, they were required to fast. Now they could fast any time by themselves or as individuals. They could prescribe their own fast, but yet uh, they were. Uh, that was the only time that they were supposed to. You know, traditions. Can be useful. We're going to see here where some of these other traditions of fast. You're right. There was four other fasts that were prescribed by the elders by their traditions, and we'll look at those in just a second. But they can be useful. They can be beneficial to us sometimes. But they can sometimes draw us away. I asked Brother David a question that a Facebook guy, Brother Scott Borland asked the other night, and I was just kind of curious about it. The tradition of altar calls. Is there any biblical evidence for to support an altar call, and when you get to thinking about it, it's a little bit hard to call because, well, for one, they didn't have churches like we have. They didn't have the building like we have. A lot of their church services took places at homes. You know, there was church buildings later on in the New Church. I mean, the, John had a church in Ephesus, and uh, we could find the the surroundings of that and some different things. But yet, it was a very different thing. But the tradition of altar call is it is there biblical. Reason for it, and as I was reading through some of the responses, and as I talked to Brother David about it, you know, I think that you know, when we read in the book of Revelation, verse 22 and 17, it says, uh, and, and the Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him that hears say, Come, and let him that is athirst come, and whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. You know, so you have this invitation of coming, you find this invitation throughout the entire New Testament. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18 says, Come, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. So even though there's no place that specifically says have an altar call, it is still a very good practice, and we, we have reason for doing that. Now, do you have to go to the altar? Is there anything about that? No. Is it saying that the, that we need to get rid of it? No, I think it's basically a, a pretty good tradition as long as we remember that is about coming to God, not about some religious duty that we're supposed to do. Some people get caught up in the old religious idea. But yet, uh, you know, we need to be very cautious about the landmarks or the traditions that we easily throw away, you know, because the Word of God speaks about that as well. Uh, Proverbs 22 and 28 uh, says, Remove not the ancient landmarks which thy fathers have said. Again in Proverbs 23 and verse 10 it tells us, Remove not thy old Landmarks. When you look at this in context, it's talking about the stones that were brought across the Red Sea and they were set up as a memorial unto the future generations about God. Or the crossing of the Jordan where they set up the stones there as well. And it was set up as a memorial toward God. And he's saying don't remove these. Make sure that your children know about these. And so there's good reason for us to look back at them and understand that they're there. So we need to be very careful about just wanting to get rid of things for the sake of getting rid of them. We need to make sure that we're doing the right thing. And this is where it's important for us to always follow after God and do what God would have us to do. Here we come down to the question once again, and as I just said, there's only one law that was prescribed in the Law of Moses, or one fast that was prescribed in the Law of Moses, Leviticus chapter 23, verse 16 through 32, and uh, that was on the Day of Atonement. But the tradition... Produced four other fasts. And as he went through them here, and we'll go through them real quick. I think I left them in your outline because I thought it might you might want to have those written down. So the, the purpose of the fast were to commemorate the destruction, the siege, or uh, Babylonian taking Israel captive. So in the 10th month, they had a fast that was to be in memorial to when Babylon started to siege Jerusalem. And then you see in the fourth month where they did it because that was when the wall was broken through of Jerusalem. Then again in the fifth month. Now in the fifth month, the temple was burned. This is the one that specifically they ask about, but we're talking about all of them. And then there's one in the seventh month when Gedala, the Jewish governor, was assassinated. And you can find that in Jeremiah chapter 41. So the question that they have here is somewhat logical. Now that the temple is about to be rebuilt, do we can still continue to have the fast on the fifth month? It makes sense. If it's rebuilt, do we still remember that it was destroyed? Or do we keep that as a memorial to us? And so uh, they, they want to know, and they're, they're wondering about this. The Jews in Babylon are sending the message back saying, you know, give us some guidance, show us what what we need to do. And, you know, It's only natural to wonder what the proper length for any type of mourning is, you know, when we mourn someone passing, for instance, and, you know, has anybody ever uh, had a friend or a loved one that lost a spouse, and then, you know, what's the appropriate time for them to mourn before they can get back into another relationship? You know, we've kind of been faced with that uh, recently, Kim and I have, with some some friends of ours, and, uh, you know, that... Lost a husband a year ago, and they got back into another relationship. Now, first of all, I guess you have to ask the question, is it, can you get into another relationship after your spouse has passed? Well, yeah, the Word of God tells us that we can. So if that's possible, so when when is it right? When, when can we stop mourning and move on with our life? And I think this is the heart of the question that they want to come and they want to ask. So the response that they have is, when Zechariah opens his mouth, he starts to speak to the heart of the issue. Because more often than not, the problem is in the heart, not in the procedure. The problem that we face is a spiritual problem, not a physical problem. They were physically fasting. They were having this day that was set aside. But Zechariah wants to take this opportunity to speak to the heart and talk about what is it that we're doing, why is it that we're doing it. He does finally give an answer. We'll look at that next week in chapter 8, verse 9. He tells them, you know, that your fast is going to be turned into a feast. But yet, right here, he wants to take this, and he wants to deal with the spiritual matter. You know, I believe that our heart is the compass of our lives. It will lead us, and it will pull us in the direction that it wants to go. And this is why it's so important for us to set our affections on the things of heaven and not the things of earth, that we need to be very cautious about what uh, our heart is leading us to do, or what we put our heart into. Jesus, of course, that was his uh, his uh, uh, message: is seek ye first the kingdom of God. But then you also look at what Paul wrote in Colossians chapter three and verse two. It says, "Set your affections on the things above, not on the things of the earth." And the reason for that. Is what Jesus says in Luke chapter 6 and verse 45. A good man out of the good treasures of his heart bringeth forth that which is good. An evil man out of the treasures of his heart bringeth forth that which is evil. For of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaketh. You know, the heart is an indicator of what's inside. If you want to know what somebody truly loves, what somebody has inside of them, all you have to do is listen for a period of time and it will eventually come out. If you know somebody who is a die-hard UK fan, when they start playing their games, football, basketball, you're going to hear about it. You hear somebody who is a die-hard NASCAR fan, if you're around them for any amount of time, you're going to know who they root for. You're going to see it. It's going to come out. You know, so out of the abundance of the heart, he, uh, speaketh the map. Proverbs put it this way in chapter 4 and verse 23. Keep the heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. They stem from that. He he wants to do that. So uh, Zechariah is going to use this issue, he's going to use this now to speak about what's in the heart. Not necessarily what they've been doing, but why they've been doing that. So in true rabbinical fashion, Zechariah answers the question by asking questions. A lot of times you saw Jesus do this. And uh, it would have to frustrate you. If you're somebody there, especially if you're trying to trip him up on something, and you ask him a question, and he turns around and he asks you a question, and as soon as he asks it, you realize there's no answer. If I answer this, you know, one way, then this group of people is going to be mad at me. If I answer it this way, then this group of people is going to be mad at me. You remember he asked him about John. He said, you know, John's baptism, who was it from? Was it from John or was it from heaven? And uh, they they didn't want to answer because they knew if they said it was from heaven, he's going to say, well, why didn't you follow through with it? If they said it was from John, they were afraid the people would get mad because they they thought highly of John. So uh, he asked this question. He asked uh, the question, you know, did you do it for the Lord or did you do it for yourself? When you were fasting, were you fasting for the Lord or were you fasting for yourself? And when you ate, when you had your feast, did you feast for the Lord or were you feasting for yourself? You know... The word of God is very clear that we should do everything to the glory of God for the Lord. Uh, In the New Testament, First Corinthians chapter ten and verse thirty-one, it says, "Wherefore, uh, whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God." Uh, Colossians three and twenty-three, and whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as unto the Lord and not unto the man. So he was asking about the fast and the feast they observed. Uh, the old prophets, the Old Testament prophets or the prophets before him, uh, they came and they, they warned them of why they should be doing this, of the, that the uh, observances should stem from the heart, not just simply out of tradition, not simply because, well, as a good Baptist, that's what we do. But that's what we want to do because it's pleasing unto God. And this is what he wants us to do. First uh, Samuel chapter 15, and verse 22, God makes it clear that he desires obedience rather than sacrifice. Remember, Saul, he was supposed to go out and he was supposed to kill all the animals, everything that was living there, and, and uh, destroy it. But yet, when he came back to Israel, Samuel came out, and Samuel heard all these animals coming back with him. And he asked him, he says, why did you bring these back? And Samuel's like, well, the people, they wanted me to bring them back so we could sacrifice them to God. And Samuel told him, obedience is better than sacrifice. God desires our obedience. You can also see Isaiah 1, Isaiah 58, and Micah chapter 6 to see similar examples if you wanted to look those up. I think I put those in your outline, didn't I? Questions from God are never meant for his understanding. We oftentimes read in the Bible where God will ask a question, but it's not so he can be enlightened to a situation. It's not so he can be informed about what's going on. Cain, where are you? Or Adam and Eve, where are you? Cain, what happened to your brother? You know, Moses, what's that in your hand? It was always a question designed to make people think about it, to ponder the situation for just a moment. So Zechariah, when he's asking these questions here, he's doing the same thing. He's wanting them to focus on themselves. Should we fast? Well, let me ask you a question. When you fast, did you do it for yourself or did you do it for the Lord? This should have automatically made them think, is it just tradition or is it something that my heart was really into? Am I just doing it because we were always told that's what we have to do? Or was I being obedient to God in doing those things? You know, like I said, everything should be for the glory of God. And the answer is, it's going to come in, in chapter 8. But Zechariah is using this in order to correct them and, and to point to the problems that their fathers had. And saying, basically, let's not commit the same sins. Let's not fall into the same trap that our fathers fell into. You know, really, in the world, there's nothing... How can I say this? There's nothing uniquely us in sin that the same problems that my father, that my grandfather, that his grandfather struggled with are some of the same things that we struggle with today. It's not like a new thing has come along for us. Now, we have new methods of sin. It's easier for us to go down to the corner liquor store and buy a bottle of booze or go online and look up things that we ought not to look at or to go rent a movie or to, to go someplace to do something wrong. It, we might have more exa- or more. Opportunities in a way, but it's the same sin that they've struggled with always. And uh, Zachariah is wanting to use this as an opportunity to tell the nation, "Don't fall back into the same problem that your fathers had. They had a form of godliness, but they denied the power. That they, they had a portion of God in their life. They had their tradition, but they and they had the uh, religion, but they lacked the relationship. They didn't have what they really." Needed. They were disobedient. They, they fell short of what God wanted them to do. It became a, a system of religion to them instead of doing the right thing for God. And uh, the prophets constantly warned them to practice justice as we read through here. This is one of the things that God wanted them to do. You know, uh, verse 9 through 10, you know, thus speaketh the Lord the host, execute true judgment and show mercy and compassion every man to his brother. Uh, The prophets had come across this, you know, but yet as we've looked through the minor prophets and we looked through the history of Israel, it was oftentimes that the rich exploited the poor, that the powerful took advantage of the weak, that the political took advantage of the ones that had no political power or pull. You remember as we were going through the book of Amos especially, he was talking about how they would lend their coats for seed. But yet, when the night would come, instead of giving them their coat back, they kept it from them. They, they, they exploited their work. They used them. Uh, the, the law was ignored, or worse yet, the law was perverted for their own good. We see this in the New Testament. We see when Jesus is dealing with the, uh, the scribes and the Pharisees that they, well, in Mark chapter 15, or Mark chapter 7 and Matthew chapter 15, They had devised a way of taking their property and giving it to themselves as ministers of the church and then not having to give it to anybody else or not having to take care of it like anybody else would. They would take their money and instead of providing for their parents like they were required to do under the law, they gave their money to themselves in the church and said, well, I can't use that because that's church money. That would be the equivalent of me saying, well... I would like to help so and so out, but the money that was that I earn is money that's come to, from the church, and you know I can't really give that money to somebody from the church without church permission. And that's fe- effectively what they were saying. And Jesus said, "Because of your traditions, you've made the word of God of non-effect. You you've exploited the law, you've used it and misused it and perverted it for something that was never intended to do." So the problem with traditions was that they used them in the place of godliness. They used them in the place of righteousness instead of allowing them to stem from their righteousness. Uh, there was a theologian by the name of uh, Jeroslav uh, Pelican, and uh, he basically says that tradition, the problem with tradition is tradition is the living faith of the dead, and traditionalism uh, is the dead faith of the living. What he effectively means by that is that a true tradition is showing the faith of our forefathers, something that they established to show that they were following after God's will. But traditionalism is when we rest on that, and that's as far as we go. We never go any further. We allow that to be our religion. We see it in the world today. We see it in ministry today a lot of times, if we're not careful. Uh, you know, we, we need to be very cautious to make sure that we're doing what God would have us to do. To ask that question, are we doing it for God, or are we doing it just because we're good Baptists, and that's what good Baptists are supposed to do? Because of their traditionalism, because of their, their desire to be in that religion as opposed to that relationship, God needed to bring some discomfort into their life. And this is the whole purpose of why they were taken uh, captivity, why they were in bondage to Babylon, the Mede-Persian Empire, and, and, and so on, because they had uh, given in to all this, because they had uh, forsaken the Lord and just simply tried to exploit the other people. And um, well, Psalm 119, David writes in verse 67, says, Wherefore I was afflicted and went astray, but now have kept thy word. You know, sometimes it takes God bringing discomfort into our lives to draw us back to a right relationship. The book of Hebrews teaches us that. That it's when we're partakers of His, well, um, discipline, we're partakers of His holiness. That He's trying to make us more like Him, that we would learn that we would uh, produce the peaceable fruits of righteousness in our own lives. You know, so sometimes it takes God with uh, withdrawing His presence and allowing the famine to come in, allowing the pestilence to come in, allowing the foreign invaders to come into our lives in order to move us away from the place where we're at to draw us to a personal relationship as opposed to that religion. Does that make sense? So this is what Zechariah is addressing here, and he's wanting to really focus on that. Now I want to talk about tradition for just a moment before we close on that. You know, what is tradition? You know, when we talk about the truest sense of tradition, the word is a Latin word that literally means to hand over or to hand down. Our traditions are handed down from one generation to another generation. And in the Christian community, we have a lot of great traditions that we can do. In fact, you know, as we read through the New Testament, we find several examples of handing down things and, and the tradition that is used with that. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1 and 2 says, Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the ordinances as I delivered them unto you. So he handed them down from one generation to the other. The same way today that we are in charge of handing down the word of God to that next generation as fathers and mothers as parents or uh, uncles or anybody with influence in young people's lives we have a solemn responsibility before the lord to carry on that tradition of passing down our faith to teach the generation that's growing up that there's a there's a true god out there that is worthy of being worshiped and, and sharing with them the faith which we have second timothy chapter two and verse two uh, Paul is writing to Timothy and he says the things that thou have heard of me among my among many witnesses the same commit thou to faithful men who shall also who shall be able to teach others also so you see the Paul says I've handed you some stuff I've taught you some good lessons now take those and deliver those to some faithful men that they can also pass those down I'm glad that the same gospel that was preached by Jesus on the shores of Galilee, was passed down through the disciples to Paul, that was also passed down through Timothy through the generations to us today, that we are still passing it down, and we need to be faithful in the passing of that down. John wrote in 1 John chapter 1, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life, for the life was manifested and we have seen it and bear witness and show unto you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that ye also have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship was with the Father and with his Son Jesus Christ. And he's saying the same thing here. That which we have heard we've passed it down to you. We, we want to continue this tradition of the gospel in fact, I believe if you follow on, if I didn't write it down for you, but verse 4, uh, 1 John 1, it says, And these things write unto your brethren, that your joy might be full. I believe in doing the right thing that we can receive joy, that we can have a pleasure in sharing the gospel and passing it down. Jude wrote in verse 3 that he wanted to write about the common salvation, but it was needful for him to write to exhort them to earnestly contend For the faith that was delivered unto them. You know, to hold on to those things that were passed down. You know, so there's some very good traditions that we should hold on to. There's some traditions that are are good for us. Things like the altar call. I don't find a thing in the world wrong with that. There's things like when we gather together and and we just, uh, we enjoy meals with one another and fellowships. And those are good things as long as we continue to do them in the right manner, and we're doing those for the glory of God, there's nothing wrong with that. But we want to make sure that we understand that traditions never replace the Word of God. The Word of God is our ultimate authority. That is what we stand on. When a tradition takes away from the Word of God, or it stands in place of the Word of God, we've got a problem. Because the Word of God that we have is our ultimate authority. When you and I disagree on an issue or a subject, we have to agree that we can go back to the Word of God and see what it says. So if I say this tradition is bad, you say this tradition is good, let's go see what the Word of God says about it. And if the Word of God is on my side, then abandon it. If the Word of God is on your side, well then we we, we go that route. We keep it or however the Word of God teaches us to do it. But the the Word of God is the standard by which we live by, not our traditions, And this takes us back to what I mentioned a moment ago in Matthew chapter 15 and Mark chapter 7. How he told them, because of your traditions, you've made the word of God of non-effect. And I wonder how many of us in here tonight have seen churches, individuals, that have, because of their traditions, have made the word of God of non-effect. Amen? I think that we've all probably have seen that sometime in our life. One commentator that I was reading... Uh, talking about tradition he said traditions should be a guide not a jailer it should be something that helps lead us into the ways of Christ never to confine us and keep us separated from the things that he went on to do he went on to say the same commentator went on to say it was easier for man to have a religion of habits than to have a religion of the heart and this is really what Zechariah was trying to say through this whole chapter where's your heart What's in the heart? Why were you fasting? Was it for God or was it just for you? Were you doing the same thing that your fathers had done for years? I mean, after all, this was almost 70 years into their captivity. Almost 70 years they had been practicing this. So some of these people, all their life, that's all they had ever known. Chances are the two men that were sent from Babylon, uh, they had never lived a life that they did not have those fasts. And they were now having the question, do we continue doing it or do we stop? And Zechariah is saying, well, what's in the heart? Is it about God or is it about you? We'll stop right there for tonight. Next week we'll go into chapter 8 and uh, we'll see, like I said, that he's going to tell them that the fasts are going to be turned to a time of feast, a time of rejoicing as the temple gets built, as we start to look forward to the second coming of Jesus Christ and He establishes millennial kingdom here on earth, that we're going to have a time of celebration. We're going to have a time of joy, a time of uh, of pleasure, and not a time of sorrow, not a time to look past. Sometimes we can spend way too much time mourning over things that have been past and not near enough time looking to the future and the good things to come. I don't believe that we should live in the future. I don't believe that we should live in the past. That we should live in the present. I think that we should be guided by what God has in store for us, and that we should learn by what we've went through. But the time to live is today.